Oh, I remember one. Uh, you know the you know the popular one, like why was six afraid of seven? Because seven, seven, eight, eight, nine. seven, eight, nine. Yeah, but then why did seven eat nine? Because you're supposed to eat three squared meals a day. It's <laughs> a math joke. I like it. <laughs> All right. Yep, yep. That concludes episode seven <laughs> of the Seat 41A podcast. We're off, we're off the air. We're off the air. <laughs> the views and opinions of authors expressed herein do not necessarily state or reflect those of the United States government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. It's really weird watching the episodes from 1990. It's like going so far back in time. It feels strange. 20 something years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's well, it's strange because like when you watch a, like an old show, like Mork and Mindy or three's company or, or something like that, that was on like Nick and Knight when we were growing up, I didn't live those times. So it doesn't like, I can watch that now and I'm just kind of like, Oh, well that's just is what it is. But like the nineties, I'm like, I remember that fashion. I remember that technology, you know, like, do you remember the episode, the, the cable, the Russians coming to install the cable? Oh yeah. yeah. So I just watched that episode recently (laughs) and it's like Jerry and Kramer are there with like the rabbit ears. I'm like, man, I have been an extension of my dad's rabbit ears. It was like, I've, I've lived that anyway. We should really get started. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Episode 7 of the Seat 41A Podcast. And happy 4A MSC Week to all our fellow 4A and MSC's listeners out there. Today, my co-hosts are... Greg Taylor. And my favorite Seinfeld character is Jackie Childs, the lawyer. Christopher Foote. And my favorite Seinfeld character is Babu. And my name is Manoj Drima, and my favorite Seinfeld character, I have to say, is Kenny Banyan. For the audience out there, we did decide that we weren't going to mention any of the recurring characters, and so really just the the one-offs for what that's worth. Anyway, we are here today to discuss our, the next book. It was actually this time not off our core chief's reading list. We kind of went off script a little bit and went off Dr. Line. He's the assistant deputy director for DHA Health Optimization Division. And the book today is Patients Come Second by Paul Spiegelman and Britt Barrett. So it was a short read. I thought it was a pretty decent book. It's very general overall speaking with discussing a lot of civilian hospitals and civilian organizations out there. So the synopsis is Americans enjoy the finest healthcare delivery in the world, but most people will tell you that we still have a long way to go. Far too frequently, patients leave the doctor's office or hospital feeling confused, angry, or neglected. Healthcare leaders recognize this problem, but in their focus on patients and sometimes financials, they often overlook the true key to lasting patient loyalty and satisfaction, their employees. Patients Come Second shakes up the traditional healthcare model, arguing that in order to care for and retain patients, leaders must first create exceptional teams and find ways to engage nurses, administrative staff, physicians, supervisors, and even housekeeping staff. By connecting employees, work with a higher purpose, and equipping them with the tools to become leaders themselves, patient care can be dramatically transformed. And with continuing health care changes on the horizon and ever-rising pressure to acquire and keep patients, doing so now is more important than ever. So for anyone that was at the MTF Leadership Conference a few months back, Dr. Line mentioned this book to the entire audience of MTF directors and 
MTF commanders and deputy commanders and SGAs in three letters. and really encourage everyone to read this book. So that's why I wanted to choose it for our podcast. And the book was, in my opinion, was pretty good. I enjoyed it. It was a short read, but it talked a lot about different areas of where you could actually focus on employees, employee engagement, and really focusing on your internal four walls to take care of that external customer. A lot of stuff to discuss, but I will start with something that's been found in the other books that we've uh, read, the dynamic between transactional and transformational leadership. It's definitely been brought up a few times and very common theme between all the books that we've read, I think. But I wanted to ask y'all, since we're all MSCs in the Air Force and now part of the bigger DHA, do y'all think DHA has a very transactional leadership style or a very transformational leadership style? Chris, what do you think? Boy, you're hitting heavy right off the bat, huh? Honestly, I I don't know if I can really answer that question because I don't see DHA as a leadership entity. I don't see them as the the organization that sets the tone of leadership in the MTFs. And in our pregame conversation, I think Greg really had a, a great point when he said that they can create or enable that space for MTF commanders to have that leadership culture. But I don't think that DHA themselves creates it. They're not a presence in the MTF. They're an external entity, in some ways, the customer. They're an external entity to the MTF. So I, I don't think that they can really set a transformational leadership culture, maybe with the direct reports, but there's so many layers, MTF director, market, DHA, and then DHA isn't one person, right? DHA is hundreds of people all working on different things that may or may not be related to each other. Well, I'll say one thing. So, you know, this book really focuses on employees and employee engagement. One of those things that came to mind was a recent policy that they put out where the active duty in our MTF, if they get tasked to do any other supplemental work for the wing, aka DDR, working exec for the wing commander, wing chief that takes away or PCAs them from the MTF for a little while, that stuff has to be approved now by DHA. So when it came to growing their employees, making them better, giving those opportunities to train them and empower them, like that seemed to be like, oh, that's not exactly what I'm seeing. Maybe in some other aspects, but with that recent memo that made me think, I don't know, are they do they do have more of a presence than I than we think sometimes in, in the MTF. And I know the fact that we keep saying that they are an outside entity, but like in essence, we are all DHA now for better or worse, however you want to look at it, but we're all under that DHA umbrella. We we are DHA. So is that culture that they've instituted up there, for lack of a better word, leaking to us at the MTF? So to take from the book, very early on, it says hospitals have missed the point that the best way to improve the patient experience is to build better engagement with their employees, who will then provide better service and healthcare to patients. To put it another way, patients come second. And so he's kind of explaining the, the title of the book. But again, I don't think that DHA, I don't think they build better engagement for, for the employees. Because even though the policies come down, it's not on the folks that are at the DHA staff jobs, right? Because like you said, we're all DHA. If we're saying DHA as just some sort of cloud agency or cloud entity, but the reality is we we are DHA, we fall under the DHA umbrella, but the people that set the employee engagement are the people in the MTF. I agree with you, Chris. I think the lessons of this book 
patients come second are ones that people at all levels can embrace. You know, one of the things that that we had talked about was your sphere of influence and the people that you can inspire or, you know, directly influence the way that they operate and their the team and how the team works together. You have the ability to take some of the things that are talked about in the book and embrace them. You know, if Dr. Lyon, he doesn't go out to every MTF all the time. He's not a presence as an individual in the MTF. His message gets out, right, in various ways, but the airman in systems, you know, doesn't see him and doesn't observe his behavior and then change their behavior, you know, accordingly to, in order to fit in or to succeed or whatever the case may be. There's too many layers of separation. So in that way, there are entities of DHA from a headquarters level that are external to the MTF because those people they control and they influence in their way, but they're not a presence as a, a physical presence. And that was one of the things that the authors talked about was getting out there and being present, you know, not leading from behind the desk, right? And being out there and being with your people, letting them know you care. And and that's not unique to this book. That's pretty much every leadership management self-help book that exists says, you know, to get out there and show people that you care. But that's something that just because of the span of control and the vastness of that area of influence, the headquarters of DHA can't do that. But what they can do, like you said earlier, Chris, is they can create an environment you know, through that MTF director to encourage the MTF to operate in a way that encourages a culture that embraces the employee as the key piece of the, the patient care system. Great question though, Manoj. I think you're right along the same lines as me. It, it was a good read. It was an easy read, but the the strongest power was kind of like, oh, you really just gets you thinking about how does this fit into my world? How does this fit into my organization? What can I do better next opportunity that I'm given? And in that way, I, I enjoyed the book. Yeah, it definitely had me thinking, how could I apply this where I'm at right now and the job that I'm in right now? I kept having to read maybe 20, 30 pages and put it down and go, okay, how does this apply? How can I work this into my everyday life right now? During the pregame talk, I know Chris had very different thoughts of the book. So I want to know what Chris's thoughts are <laughs> next. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that they were very different. I didn't enjoy the book as much as I had hoped maybe that I would. I've really had kind of a hard time explaining it then and and now even to like why I don't really enjoy it. I think a lot of the information that was in the book was relevant and it it certainly like Greg had said earlier, it really had me thinking about, you know, putting myself in the in the situations in the book, the the stories that they're telling, the explanations that they're giving, you know, I could sort of visualize them and put myself in there, but they felt very surface level to me and some of the things there were there were several examples where you know they said they would do things and that ultimately led to this culture shift or this massive change and you know we all know it's not just a a one and done kind of thing you know he referred to the dunk tank several times i'm just gonna you know offer myself to the dunk tank once and then all of a sudden i have built this amazing great culture where everybody feels appreciated and and now all of a sudden the patients are really being taken care of. I felt like there was a lot of stuff that was in between where they started to build the culture and then where they 
where they ended. And I felt like a lot of the stuff in between was just kind of missing. And they kind of just barely scratched the surface on talking about, you know, folks that weren't going to buy in. And, and I'm one, I'm a skeptic, like down to my bones, I'm a skeptic of a lot of things. And so I can't help but read this and go, yeah, but what about those people that are like, yeah, okay, I'm not doing that or no way I'm participating in this, right? And they don't really talk about that. Their solution to a lot of that was just get rid of them. We don't have that option. We don't We don't get that. And I personally don't believe that that's the best form of leadership is to just get rid of people because you think, oh, well, they're just not buying into the culture. So yeah, that's those were just kind of my thought on it. Yeah, Greg, you got a thought? So I agree with you. I think that if you're reading Patients Come Second with the intention like, okay, this is a roadmap from getting where I am now to some nirvana where employees are engaged, they're performing amazing care. That's not what you're going to get out of this book. It's definitely a something that can be thought-provoking and can get you to perhaps change the way that you approach certain situations. But one of the keys that you need in order to make that happen is you need experience. I think somebody, this book could be, I think dangerous is a bit overblown, but the lessons of this book will be improperly applied by a brand new person who has no managerial or practical work experience. You know, they've been a student, they're just graduating from college or something like that. The authors, Paul and Britt, make it sound easy. Oh, I did a I did a funny video where I dressed up in a funny costume to like teach about patient safety and everybody watched the video and it was amazing. It's like, that's the kind of speak from somebody who's like never done a CBT before. Yeah, man, I'm telling you, there was so much of that in there that it was just, (laughs) I I couldn't help but think like, if I'm seeing this at a commander's call and this is like the first thing they're doing, you know, you imagine like it's the, the squadron commander's first time they're coming in, they're going just way over the top. They lose the room immediately. And, you know, Manoj, you and I talked about that a little before too about the context of some of this. And I think maybe that's kind of what you're getting at, Greg, that the context of how to apply some of this, I I felt was just kind of missing. Yeah. And I I definitely agree with that. Like, But I do want to ask, because it kind of goes into my next point, which I'll throw over to Greg, when he talks about having fun at work, do you try to implement that where you're at? Or do you think that's a good technique? I mean, obviously it is, but in the context of the book, do you think that's something we could apply? I do. I do. I think, again, you know, going back to an earlier thought, just because Paul and Britt are CEOs doesn't mean this is only the something that can only be implemented from an executive level, right? Everybody can do something, right? So in that sense, I absolutely think that it is vital to have fun at work. And it's more than just like, oh, we joke around or we have a potluck or we do a, you know, Jersey day so that we can give each other a bunch of crap about like what team we like and stuff like that. I mean, those are good things. I think we should encourage those and we should take opportunities when, when they present themselves to participate that or, or not, if that's not your thing. Right. But more importantly, it has to be okay to not take ourselves so seriously. I think that's really the the thing. And and you guys know from our time in the past as flight commanders together, you know, I'm not the person who's just going to take myself too seriously. And I try to encourage that amongst the team is like, hey, a real lesson for AFSENT, right? For Air Forces Central where I'm, where I'm working is we do orientation 
with a lot of MSEs and a lot of people going into leadership positions that are deploying out into CENTCOM, right? And they come for a one-day orientation. We give them a, you know, hey, this is what, you know, what's going on. These are the missions. These are the parameters. These are some of the challenges that you're going to face, things like that. And then one of the last pieces of advice that I give them kind of as they're walking out the door is that in this culture, in this organization, everything comes across as urgent, but it's not, you know, it's okay if you can't do everything. It's okay if you're tired and things like that. Like, it's okay to feel that way. It's okay. And, you know, that's what leaders are supposed to be there for is to help you to figure out what's important. And if they can get you help, you know, to do something that needs doing to do that. But, you know, just because, you know, everyone's kind of huffing and puffing about about something, it'll be okay. Like, don't take everything so seriously. And and that's what I try to leave them with at the end, because otherwise I feel you can just really lose sight of the idea that it's okay to laugh. It's okay to be silly. It's okay to, you know, tell a joke. It's probably shouldn't be an inappropriate joke and you guys know what i'm talking about especially depending on your audience but it's it's okay to have fun i know Manoj tells silly dad jokes that get more groans than laughs but it's levity and it's bringing levity and joy to a situation even though you just love how bad it is wouldn't you agree Manoj? well i gotta get really good on those dad jokes since i'm about to become one in like five months or so so i've been prepping for this forever <laughs> These are big times. Big Welcome times. to the club. Oh my gosh. So nervous. Don't take it too seriously. It's actually not like it's, it's, it's kind of hard to mess it up like really bad. Like you have to be consistently bad and then your wife is going to prevent you from doing the really stupid stuff. So, you know, take, she already does. take, uh, take solace <laughs> in that. So I was trying to find a really bad dad joke. <laughs> I just wanted to say it, but I can't think of anything right now. Oh, I remember one, oh, you I... know, the, you know, the popular one, like why was six afraid of seven? Because seven, seven, eight, eight, nine. seven, eight, nine. Yeah, but then why did seven eat nine? Because you're supposed to eat three squared meals a day. It's <laughs> a math joke. I like it. <laughs> All right. Yep, yep. That concludes episode seven <laughs> of the Seat 41A podcast. We're off, we're off the air. We're off the air. <laughs> hey, do you guys know what you call uh, killer whales that play musical instruments? Ooh, no. I feel like the killers? Isn't that a band? An orchestra. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Chris is just gonna leave. Like, I'm signing really, off. I'm done. <laughs> are we really doing are we doing this right now? Hey, I'm pretty sure we did like one of the earlier episodes with your daughter's the sorting hat. We I mean did the sorting hat. I, well, this is a step up from poo water, so <laughs> gotta have yeah. fun at work see gotta have fun hey you gotta just put the poo water behind you <laughs> that's gold that's gold greg that's gold <laughs> oh so okay well uh, i'm done moving on back to moving on well the other two gentlemen mm -hmm. get control of themselves i do want to talk about something like just a really good example of what i'm talking about right i recently had the opportunity to be out at LED. And I was hanging out with the logistics flight that was over there. And it was at the end of the fiscal year, right? And I was talking with them, you know, a lot of the folks that were on that deployment, they were coming towards the end of their time. And I was asking them about their tour and some of the challenges that they had, you know, and they talked about how at the beginning it was really rough and there was a lot. That needed to be done. You know, there's some serious problems with the logistics account that needed to be 
addressed and they had to get to work and, you know, just kind of, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You know, that was the approach that they had and they, and they worked hard, you know, but then they forged bonds through working through those hardships, right? A lot of really painful inventories and re-inventories and reports of survey and, and things like that. And then, you know, what I witnessed at the end of their tour was, was a team that in, really enjoyed having fun together. And I just want to paint the scene for you here, right? You have a warehouse, like a medium sized warehouse. And, you know, the shelves are organized. They've got, you know, some stuff that's getting turned in for destruction. But they pulled out this long, like, Last Supper table out of nowhere, set up all these chairs, and all this food just started appearing. And there are things that you would not expect to find in a deployed environment. You know, you've got pancit ceviche and various meats on sticks, lumpia several side dishes their wings you know your traditional like burgers and dogs and all this stuff and so you know obviously some off-base grocery stores were had right but you know everybody there laughing joking telling some great stories and you know that was a team that just really you know their leadership and the individuals on that team they embraced having fun with each other and i think that's a little bit easier to do in a deployed environment right because all you have is each other and you're a little bit more isolated from some of those other distractions. But that was just a really shining example that I saw of a team that just, when the work needs to get done, they get it done. But they were, you know, making shit happen out there, but then having fun at the end of the day. And I think that made them just that much more effective when, you know, the phone rang and something needed to be done. No, great point, Greg. And I, I definitely saw the picture you sent us of that spread. It definitely looked absolutely legit. So it definitely sounds like they have a good peer-to-peer network going on there. Definitely the camaraderie out there. And I can understand that, not necessarily from a deployed location, but being at Kunsan, you're kind of in that remote area. And the camaraderie there was absolutely unmistakable. But it was real there. And it was definitely felt. And that got into something that I read in the book about the award system that some of these CEOs and Paul and Britt had, but one of them was acronized Pride. And I can't remember exactly what it stands for at the moment, but it was like a peer recognition system for peer to peers to recognize another one and they get an award. They can go onto their Brit's website, I think, and put in a comment about somebody. And then at the end of the month or the quarter, they got an award for whatever that person did. And I remember having that at Lake and Heath in my Topa flight. Within our flight itself, it was so big that I decided to put an award together. It was called the Topa titan of the month and we had a big well it wasn't really a titan helmet it was definitely a spartan helmet but still same thing but it was very peer-to-peer like people could nominate somebody else within the flight for having done a really good job that month or they did one particular thing that was outstanding and then i I collect all the nominations and me and the flight chief would pick and we pass around the helmet to every person in the flight that won it. And I really enjoyed that. I definitely brought our flight together, even though it was nothing outstanding that you could put on an EPR, like present an award by the flight commander. No, that doesn't mean much. But it was something that at least showed recognition to my people within my flight that their peers saw of them. So that really drives team engagement, employee engagement up. I, I do want to say just a point about the recognition at, at our level, especially at the flight command level um, and within our flights. I think that that's really super important. I feel like we've gotten to a point and I could be completely wrong 
about this. So tell me what your experiences are. But I, I feel like we all sort of just agree that the quarterly and annual awards recognition process has just become sort of this checkbox thing that we do to because we know that it's important for career progression at all levels. But it, it feels much more meaningful when we're doing things that are more organic within our sections and recognizing people for those things that may not get captured on an EPR. And it's more timely. I'm a big fan of that type of recognition over, say, the quarterly and the annual awards. Yeah, go Sorry, ahead. Chris, can I jump in on, yeah. uh, on that thought? I think one thing that undermines those quarterly awards, right, is that they're written in bullet style, like our current EPR, OPR system. And the common sentiment about those bullets for mo in most cases there's you know true action that happened under them but everything's inflated and you know made to seem so much more important than it really is right and so i think you know when you talk about individual awards you're talking about specific actions that happen to the people cuz it's like somebody doing a solid for you know someone else on the team and that i think is something that you feel versus appointed projo for x you know led this many people raised 20k for whatever i think things like the titan of the month and like peer nominations right you get your peer to nominate you by doing something that affected them in one way or another and with epr bullets and with quarterly award bullets the way that we write them we write them in such a way that the accomplishments seem very important but it strips the the actual feeling out of what it is it's like listening to a decoration citation being read you know in in most circumstances sometimes there's some medals that you know end of tour things or or specific specific achievement medals that you know like you can really kind of feel the action behind that but a lot of them, a lot of the end of tour medals are just spelling out an EPR bullet or an OPR bullet, and and there's really no feeling behind it. Do you think that could change with the new narrative award writing system that they're coming out with? I doubt it. I really do. But I wonder if I could just throw in something like there that could maybe hit home with somebody instead of making it sound very robotic. Do you think that it's more cultural than it is format? To Minoja's point, he's saying, well, if we're using a narrative, then we'll have the opportunity or somehow we'll have more space to focus on those maybe, I don't know, we're, we're always going to try to quantify. Intangibles? The, the yeah, intangibles, maybe? Yeah, but yeah. we're always going to try to quantify the things because we just, when we look at these, we just, we compare them. It's still, it's still a list of achievements. And I don't know where there's going to be space in the evaluation system. And I'm not necessarily feeling like maybe it should, there should be space, but I don't think that there will be space in there for the human impact. I mean, I think we all agree that trust is an important value in our organizations. Definitely, and definitely agree. Trust is a, an important, but I mean, like we're in a EPR bullet, bullet or narrative are every one of the ncos trusts this airman like how do you write that into into a bullet what i would tell you though is in the day-to-day -day operations of that flight that trust is felt and that trust matters and if that trust is gone it's a completely different flight yeah i'll be honest if i heard, read established trust within the flight at the end of a bullet and grading it i might not rank it as high as someone saying they saved a thousand man hours and 
the clinic $30,000. That definitely wouldn't woo me to pick that person. But you're right. Like that for me and my team would probably matter more than saving X amount of dollars for the clinic. Because that trust can go a lot further than just that one time save. You know where that information belongs. You find it in like a 360 feedback, right? And then maybe there's a way to extract that information. The mental picture that I have right now is like a movie poster where then on the poster, it has like little snippets from like different reviewers, like with the Los Angeles Times and, uh, you know, the whatever, like astonishing, a breathtaking film, you know, things like that. Aaron Smith, uh, you know, he'll watch your dog when you go on vacation for the weekend, you know, stuff like stuff like that. I mean, it's kind of corny, but, you know, the my example is kind of corny because I don't have any specifics to draw off of. But some of those statements, though, I think. You know, if those were publicized, that would make me feel really good. I think if I was the recipient of that, just hearing some of that feedback of, you know, when I when I'm feeling down, I go and, you know, and I talk to Taylor and, you know, he perks me up or if I can't figure out a problem and I bring it to him, he, he you know, he helps me come up with an idea or a solution. I mean, like, I would love to hear those things about myself. And that's not a shameless plug for you guys to tell me that, but we uh, love you, Greg. Oh, thanks, man. You are that. you are the optimist of the Seed 41A podcast. You bring the positive influence to my Debbie Downer. <laughs> you know, it's more of a realism, I feel, Chris. You know, <laughs> yeah, there's, so many opportuni- there's so many opportunities that, you know, we get let down in one way or another. I just bring diversity to the crow. That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> You're the most creative one out of all of us. You know, Everyone would hear all my ums and uhs if it, if it weren't for you. You can't edit those two out now. So to your 360 feedback point, Greg, the core office has been piloting a 360 feedback program. Keesler was one of the pilot sites for it. I'm wondering if I know somebody who was part of that uh, rollout. Maybe we ought to bring him on and talk to him about it. I'm very interested in the in the program and I'd love to hear how it kind of came about. And I'm certainly willing to reach out to him. It's Scott McKeithen. I don't know if you guys know Scott. We talked a bit about it while I was at D Hits, but and I know I had mentioned to him about bringing him on, but I should probably reach out to him. Might make for a good episode. Yeah, I think that's some good discussion. I was able to experience that when I did my my civilian residency. They did 360 feedbacks, and I really like the idea. I've been using them with my direct reports this last year. 360 feedbacks. So I set up something on. It's just my own informal version. I honestly don't know at all what the core office's 360 feedback looks like. But what I've been doing anyway is just using a online survey tool as the platform. And I have a a couple of questions, you know, what does this person do well? What opportunities do they have? You know, what examples do you have where they espouse the values of the organization? Things like that. What's a word that you would use to describe this individual? Have a little histogram of different words that are used, you know, things like that. And I don't know, I think the the feedback's valuable. I started doing that a little bit at Lake and Heath, but I've more wholeheartedly adopted it here. Uh, so Manoj, you had asked about the contractors. Yeah, when it comes to our active duty and our civilians, we definitely can feel that mission. But I think with the contractors, you had a point you wanted to bring up about that. So in terms of contractors, so you talked about the active duty and the GS. There was a mention of independent contractors in the book. 
And he says that they don't have any skin in the game in buying into the organization's culture. I don't necessarily agree with that. I can see his point. I can see where he's coming from to say that they're not incentivized, I guess, in the same way that non-independent contractors would be, right? So for us, that's our GS and active duty. But all the contractors that I've worked with have wholeheartedly embraced the organization's culture and have done everything that is willing and necessary to become a part of the team, to help the organization's culture. I I just didn't agree with that statement. I I thought he was off base on that one. I know there's always like, you know, I've talked to other MSCs and sometimes they've had some challenges with contractors, you know, because we don't have direct supervision over them or, and I can't say it's always been smooth sailing for myself either. But at the end of the day, I don't feel like they have no skin in the game. I just felt like that that was off base. What do you guys think? Do you think some of that is because a lot of them are ex-military? Yeah, maybe. I think people are attracted to wanting to come and work in the MTF, right? It's it's familiar, or at least being on base in some way, because you know, we've I've got contractors that weren't in healthcare or an MTF before doing the job that they are now in the in the hospital. But I don't think that that's the only reason. No, no, certainly not. I, I think that's that's part of it, right? At least amongst the contractors who are prior military who come back and then their contractors working in a military unit, they're very much still mission driven because that's what they know. Not that others can't be, but you know, they're they're glad I think to shed some of the nonsense that comes with military service and definitely like the, you know, moving around at deployments and things like that, if that's not your thing or that's not right for you and your time of life that you're in. You know, I think a lot of them are happy to hang that up or, you know, anytime we talk about like a PT test or, you know, like a 6 a.m. formation or something like that, it's like, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to do that anymore. I digress though. No, those are think- those are great points, but they still have to, right? You think they do a 20-year career and then they've been a contractor for 20 plus years. The organization and the culture of the organization, even if they're familiar with it, like as a member of the DOD, think of what did the DOD look like 40 years ago? And so the culture of the DOD then was even just 10 years ago, it's entirely different. So they're still going to have to, although they're familiar with with the culture and it's comfortable, they're still going to have to change and embrace the newer versions of the of the culture that are are emerging dod 2.0 i agree with you i think too it it depends a little bit on the nature of the contract what brings that contractor in you know a lot of the personal services contracts i think are the ones that we work with the most where contract company is furnishing an fte to work in your flight to do certain tasks And that's a lot different than the government hiring contractors to run the remedy ticket system. And so there's a help desk that you can call and those people aren't bought in on your mission. Those are two different types of contractors. I think we have similar interactions, but it's easier for someone on a personal services contract to play that game and to be more more of a part of the culture of an organization than contractors that work under a services contract would be. hey, my job is to just come in here and empty the trash, not to embrace patients first people always or whatever your motto is. 
I will say it probably doesn't help that we're not allowed to recognize them in many ways, at least in the same ways we do GS civilians in our active duty at the ceremony, award ceremonies that we hold. Uh, I know we can do it less publicly by sending their company an email and maybe the company will come around and do something for them from their end, but it doesn't help that we can't actually give them a quarterly award or anything like that. So on that note, I have no idea if the two contractors that work in my section listen to this podcast. That would make it seven plus my mom. We've been fortunate to win a team award in the past, but they're not named on the award like the active duty and GSR. And so when that happened, I just I took the two of them out to lunch as a thank you. It was just something small. I imagine, Chris, you had like 80% of your flight being contractors. That would get kind of expensive if you're going to take all of them out to lunch if you won systems flight of the quarter or whatever. But but still. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. That would get very expensive. But that doesn't mean we don't try to do things within the flight. You know, Manoj, like you said, with your Topa Titans Award, there's nothing that prohibits us from including them on, on those kinds of things. We do a Shark of the Week I went and got a little, you know, just a little toy shark and and that gets passed around. We announced the shark on Monday and just recognize somebody that has exhibited the values, the culture that we're trying to build within the flight. I think small things like, again, for me anyways, I think small things like that that are more frequent and more personal do more to shape the culture than than your quarterly or annual awards. Yeah, I definitely agree. And that's so the great thing about those oh. is that those the contractors can be included in that. So it it really is you you can include everybody. There's there's no restrictions on it. I'm going to turn the question back on you. What would your advice be to somebody who maybe is struggling with that contractor or civilian employee who just really doesn't want to be a team player? How do you approach that situation? I mean, there's no there's no every situation is unique, so there's no one answer, right? But just like what do you think of? What do you go to first? It's a really good question. I know we probably all have dealt with that in some way or fashion. And I think my first instinct is just not to overreact. I definitely take that mindset of kill them with kindness. You know, I'm not going to shun that person. I'm not going to not include them in huddles or anything like that. I'm going to probably include them more, probably joke with them more, talk to them more and try to see if I could dig deep and see what the actual problem is. Because it's probably not as obvious as I think it might be. Maybe something's going on at home. Maybe this is not where they want to be in this location. I know it's Altus. Not a lot of people want to be here, but how can I make... They're they're here and how can I make their time here worth it for them? And I will sometimes usually try to go out of my way to find that reason. If it's not for me, maybe I'll ask one of their friends like, hey, do you know what's going on? Is there anything we could do? And that goes back to, you know, bringing that whole aspect of having fun at work because I definitely keep that as my number one priority. Because I know in my mind, my mantra has been, if I can, if I'm having fun at work, then I'm enjoying work. If I'm enjoying work, then I'm doing a better job at my work. And the results come after that. So I definitely try to make my workplace a fun environment. So because if I'm having, if I have happy employees, then I have, in my opinion, effective employees. People can tell when you don't (laughs) care, when you're just like, when you're phoning it in, it's like, you're going to get the minimum effort, minimum response. But if you care, it's like, I want to work hard for you because I see how hard you, how much you care. And so I think, I think having, yeah, like what you said, if you're having fun, those intangibles are are there that draw people 
to you and draw effort out of others. I will say just the other day, I attended our camp meeting, which deals with all our MCT open items and our TJC open observations that we want to fix before the actual interviewers come. And that meeting was so funny because our facility manager was just the way he was answering his questions just made the entire room laugh. And I could honestly say I was like the first day in a long time that I actually had fun at work. And then I looked back on that day and I was like, oh, man, I got a lot done actually after that meeting because I think I was just in a better mood. And it's a real feeling and a real outcome that happens from that. I think that's an important lesson to take away is too just about knowing yourself. I think if you get a sense that you're losing your way a little bit, it's an opportunity to recenter yourself again. It's like, hey, what can I do? Oh, I don't like my job. Well, is it the entire job or are there pieces of it you do like? You know, can you embrace that? Can you do a little bit of that and kind of restore some of that joy back in your life? You know, no, I think that's that's really good advice for, for everybody there, Manoj. So this episode brings us to the end of our first season of book reviews for the 2022 book list for the upcoming holidays before we start into our 2023 book list review. We won't be completely off the air. We're going to have a couple of deployment stories out there for you, which we're really excited to bring to you. Really just hear some lived experience from what MSCs are doing in an expeditionary environment. And it's really some fascinating stuff from Europe to the Middle East to even uh, some of our locations within the United States. So please stay tuned uh, for that. And also, if you take a listen and you know those stories inspire you, I just encourage you to reach out to those individuals and let them know that you heard them and that you know what what you took away from that because every single one of the people that we talked to was really excited by the prospect that some of the things that they learned that they would do over again or that they were able to accomplish might inspire other people and so please uh give them that feedback in the same way that you've given us feedback during this year with this podcast and it's really inspired us to keep working at it keep trying to get better and so again uh, a big thank you to everyone out there and hope you keep listening i don't know how you guys feel but this podcast really didn't go the way that i thought it was going to go when we started and really kind of expanded beyond where i thought was possible and i think we did a lot more than we thought we could do and I'm really excited to come back in the new year with a new book list and really bring some good content to our listeners again next year. Yeah, this has grown a lot faster than I thought it would and grown a lot bigger than I thought it would too. You know, we're all on MSC. So at some point we have to look into the stats. And I know Chris looked to it on our website and showed that we were reaching like 19 co-coms. And we had over 600 downloads. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, that that's insane. But then, yeah, you realize... We're almost at uh, 800 now. 800, man. That's... Yeah, that's we're, we're close. We got to do a little mini celebration when it gets to 1,000. But that's pretty incredible. And it, it also reminded me where all our MSCs are at. Like, we are all over the place, literally. And it's, it's awesome to know we have... A little bit of a fan base and people like, if not, maybe just like hearing our voice. I don't know. We have a lot of fans out there, including our moms. Shout out to our moms. But this has been a crazy ride and I'm definitely looking forward to the next season next year. Yeah, I'll just echo what Greg and Manoj have already said. 
really appreciate uh, you, the listeners, tuning in, giving us your time to hear us talk about the books and all the other things that we've covered uh, during the podcast. Of course, you know we never really thought that that this would have grown to to what it's grown to, and will continue to grow. We've got some really great stuff coming uh, for season two, and we're really excited and looking forward to it. So thanks for for tuning in. Thanks for supporting us. And we really appreciate you guys, the listeners. Without you guys, we really wouldn't have anything to talk about. So from all of us here to all of you there, we'll see you in season two. C41A is an independent company and produced by C41A Media. Digital media support and creative director, Manoj Rima. Marketing and IT, Christopher Foote, and Director and Outreach, Greg Taylor.